Hello to you, I do hope you're well. Welcome to this AQA A-Level Religious Studies revision video. I'm Bone Wardle and today we are looking at the Paper 2 Christianity topic, Christian Key Moral Principles. So we are continuing with the Good Conduct and Key Moral Principles consolidation questions. So we're going to pick up on question 32 because we are now talking about the Christian Key Moral Principles. So lots of really interesting things coming up actually. We're talking about the sanctity of life and then we'll be applying that to issues such as abortion and embryo research. We'll then be looking at just war theory and then we'll be concluding with a look at animals and environmental ethics and in particular at Lindsay's belief that Christian ethics are too anthropocentric and that actually they need to be theocentric instead. So yes, lots to talk about and of course lots of links to other areas of the course that we can make here, you know, a lot of links to paper one religious ethics for example. So we are going to pick up with question 32 which is explain the Christian concept of the sanctity of life and you know the key word here really of course is sanctity and sanctity means sacred so you know very easy to remember and so the sanctity of life concept is the idea that all life is sacred and holy, that it has intrinsic worth and value because it has been created by God. So remember, sanctity of life is very much a religious concept. It's also an absolutist concept. You know, the idea of sanctity of life is that because God has created life, it is sacred. And so it can't, it can, I'm going a little bit, well, I don't know what accent that was meant to be actually. <laughs> but what I was trying to say, is that it's then fixed. It can't then change. It's not flexible. Because God has created you, your life is sacred, your life is holy. And of course, we would link in there the Imago Dei doctrine, wouldn't we? The idea that humans are all made in the image of God, Imago Dei. And we will pick up on this, as I say, when we talk about animal and environmental ethics towards the end of the video. But for now, it's just really important to know sanctity of life is the idea that all life is sacred and holy it therefore has this intrinsic absolute worth and value because it has been created by God and that is not subject to change it's because God has created you and so it is fixed it's inflexible your life is sacred it is holy and of course then the implication of that would be that murder or taking life is wrong because it is God who is sovereign over life. It is God who gives life and then takes life away as well. So in terms of our scripture that underpins this, you know, the brilliant quote is from Jeremiah chapter one. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So it's this idea that every life has been intentionally created by God, that God has given your life purpose and your life therefore has intrinsic worth and value. And so the sanctity of life is really important for understanding Christian ethics and attitudes to issues such as abortion, but then also euthanasia as well. So as I say, you know, the Ten Commandments reflect this belief in the sanctity of life. Do not kill. You know, when we're asking, well, why? Why should you not kill other people? And it's because their life has intrinsic worth and value that is based on the fact they've been created by God. And so ending life would always be wrong because it belongs to God, who is sovereign over life and death. And of course, you know, this is really interesting when we consider capital punishment over on paper one, isn't it? Because we think, well, you know, is there ever a time when, you know, your sanctity of life can be taken away. 
um, you know, or it could be seen as the lesser of two things to consider. For example, you know, taking life because it's part of a justice system. Um, but it, in its strongest form, which is the form the Catholic Church takes, for example, it is this belief that no matter what you do or no matter how you feel or no matter what happens to you, your life is always valuable. It has intrinsic worth and value because it has been created by God and so it can't be taken away. So question 33, give a quote from the Bible that underpins sanctity of life. Remember, in your A-level answers, you must always be giving evidence for every point that you're making. I like to say that in every paragraph, you need to refer to a scholar or scripture. You have to underpin everything with your references. So we could use Genesis 1, that God created man in his own image, because, of course, that underpins that Imago Dei doctrine. And then also Jeremiah as well. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. You know, I chose you. I created you with purpose and I gave your life value. And so that teaches us, doesn't it, that every human being, their life has value, it has worth, and that worth is intrinsic, yeah? It's from within. It can't therefore be taken away. It's not subject to change, or it's not a matter of personal opinion. Every life has objective worth and value because it has been created by God. Question 34 then, explain the catechism's teaching that human life must be respected and protected absolutely from conception. So, of course, the catechism is the teaching document of the Catholic Church. And if we link that back to sources of wisdom and authority, we know that for Catholics, the church has equal authority to the Bible. And so whatever's in the catechism would be taken just as seriously as what is in the Bible. And of course, a lot of what's in the catechism is derived from the Bible. And this is a great example of that because the Catholic Church believes in the sanctity of life, of course. And really interestingly, they believe that um, life begins at conception, which is when the sperm fertilizes the egg. And so from this moment, life exists. And of course, then the sanctity of life doctrine has real implications for attitudes to abortion, doesn't it? Because it therefore means that abortion is always wrong because human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception. So from the moment when the sperm fertilizes the egg, that is when life has begun. And so abortion would always be wrong. And the catechism says, from the first moment of his existence, a human being must be recognized as having the rights of a person. So from that moment when the sperm fertilizes the egg, when conception has taken place, that life is sacred. It's not potential life. It is life that must be treated and respected in the same way you would treat an actual human being after they've been born. So from the moment of conception, um, you are recognised as having the rights of a person. Um, and among those is the inviolable right of every innocent being to life. So it's that idea that you must not have an abortion because that would be murder. And so the Catholic Church says abortion is a moral evil and contrary to the natural law. And again, a really important link, of course, to paper one and religious ethics there. But yeah, the Catholic Church believes life begins at conception. And so that is when that sanctity of life doctrine kicks in from that moment of conception. It's not after you've been born, but it's actually from the moment of conception. And of course, the implications there are for um, attitudes towards the embryo, attitudes towards abortion. 
Okay, so question 35, what is the strong version of the sanctity of life principle? And this is the version that the Catholic Church maintains. And according to the strong version of the principle, all humans have an absolute right to life that must never be taken away. And so the implication is that life must always be preserved. So abortion would always be wrong and euthanasia would always be wrong. There is therefore no consideration of circumstances. There is no way that you can make any exceptions. This strong version is where you stick to the principle no matter what. And the principle is that all humans have an absolute right to life. Life must always be preserved. It must never be taken away because, as I say, God has given you life. God is sovereign over life. And so your life has intrinsic worth and value. So even if you're in great pain, for example, that doesn't take away the value of your life. And we will compare sanctity of life to quality of life in a moment. But in terms of sanctity of life in its strongest form, it is completely fixed. It is absolutist. There is no room for manoeuvre, you could say. There are no exceptions, no exceptional circumstances. Life must always be maintained, preserved and protected. What about the weaker version then? So this is where it's diluted ever so slightly. So question 36, what is the weak version of the sanctity of life principle? And according to the weak version, all human life is sacred because, of course, the word sanctity means sacred and it still is a version of the sanctity of life principle, but not absolutely so. So this has a couple of implications and this is the position taken by the Church of England. So it means that in exceptional circumstances, potentially life-saving or preserving treatment may be omitted or withdrawn. So with the weaker version, it's about saying that life is sacred, but it doesn't have to be preserved beyond reasonable means, measures or expectation. Yeah. So it's saying life is still sacred, but you don't have to then preserve it at all costs. So, for example, you know, if you're thinking there is nothing more we can do for this person. So you should not then unnecessarily prolong treatments. You know, treatment may be omitted if it seems to be too, you know, invasive, for example, you know, or it could be withdrawn if you think that the treatment is futile and it's prolonging life. And that's just leading to, you know, more pain and more suffering. And so in exceptional circumstances, you could therefore, as a doctor, thinking of your medical ethics, withdraw uh, life-saving or preserving treatment. This also then has implications um, for the beginning of life as well. So obviously those points would be about euthanasia, but also we have to consider the developing fetus because, and this is important, the weak version of the principle says that the fetus is a potential person rather than an actual one. So remember, the Catholic Church believes that life begins at conception, whereas this weak version held by the Church of England is that the fetus is a potential person rather than an actual one. So the fetus obviously has the potential to become a person. And so the right to life becomes stronger as that fetus develops. So we'll talk about embryo research and the 14 day cutoff, for example. And we can also look at abortion law in this country, which has a cutoff point as well. And it's this idea that the fetus is a potential person rather than an actual one. So that is a real contrast with that idea that life begins at conception. This is therefore, as I've put here, a slightly weaker version as there is the potential for exceptions to be made. So it is slightly diluted, you could say. Life does not have to be preserved at absolutely all costs and life is not believed to begin at conception. The fetus is seen as a potential 
person. So, you know, implications there, of course, for attitudes to embryo research, abortion and euthanasia. And just important to note that this is often combined with the secular quality of life principle that we're going to look at in a moment, which does take into account a person's capacity for self-fulfillment, dignity, happiness, wellness. Yeah. Whereas, of course, the sanctity of life does not consider anything because sanctity of life is intrinsic. It is fixed and absolutist based on the fact God has created you. It's therefore not subject to change. Whereas, of course, quality of life is then a self-assessment where you're making a judgment um, about how happy you are, how fulfilled you are, for example. So let's actually talk about that now. We question 37. What is the difference between sanctity of life and quality of life? So as we've said, Sanctity of life is a religious concept and it's an absolutist concept. It is fixed. It cannot change. It is inflexible. So it's the belief that all life is always sacred, all human life, because it is created by God. And so in its strongest form, as we've just seen, sanctity of life is fixed from the moment of conception. It is therefore always wrong to take life. It is 100% sacred at all times. And so it should always be preserved. It should always be protected. And as we say, that is your Catholic view, which is why the Catholic Church teaches that abortion and euthanasia are great sins. The quality of life principle then is a secular concept. So it is a non-religious concept and it is also subjective. So, you know, your key comparisons there is sanctity of life is religious and absolutist, whereas quality of life is secular and subjective. And it is your self-assessment of the quality of your life, as the name suggests. And so, of course, that is going to change over time based on the level of health, contentment, fulfillment and happiness you feel. You know, think about it in school. The quality of your life might be really high in your favourite subject. And then when you have to go and do your least favourite subject, the quality of your life is going to, you know, decline, isn't it? You would say that you aren't as happy when you sat in that lesson compared to when you're in PE, drama, RE, whatever your favourite subject is. Uh, and so it is therefore flexible, of course, and subject to change. And of course, the implication here is that, you know, this would allow, wouldn't it, things like euthanasia. If somebody has a terminal illness, a degenerative illness, and they feel their quality of life has declined to such a low level that can't then be recovered, uh, that euthanasia is something that they would like. Whereas sanctity of life is fixed, you know, because God has created you, your life is always then sacred until he decides to take it away. Whereas quality of life is obviously going to change based on what's going on, how you're feeling, how good your health is, how happy you are. So those two concepts we have to always consider in terms of sanctity being religious and absolutist, quality being secular and subjective. OK, question 38, then I want to get into some AO2. So let's be thinking about potential 15 markers when, of course, we don't just want to know our AO1 knowledge, but, you know, at a AO2 or in an AO2 answer, I should say, we have to focus on our evaluation. So why might you be saying the sanctity of life is a good thing? Well, it promotes and ensures respect for human life, doesn't it? Because it says all human life has intrinsic worth, value, dignity and value. It promotes and ensures protection for the vulnerable. So there are no exceptions here. It's not saying your life is sacred if you've got this much money or, you know, if you are this attractive or this successful. It's saying that every single life 
is sacred because every single life has been created by God. And so, as I say, it protects the most vulnerable, especially in society. It provides a very clear answer to ethical issues such as abortion and euthanasia. You know, it's very clear about its opposition to them and why it opposes them. So there is no ambiguity. There is no uncertainty. So it can provide people with very clear, concrete solutions and answers. And of course, we can say it is true to biblical teachings such as Jeremiah. And of course, for Christians, that is always a strength because, you know, the Bible, as we know from the sources of wisdom and authority topic, is that infallible, inerrant word of God, isn't it? So it's so important that what a Christian is believing, doing and thinking is in alignment with Holy Scripture. And we could also say that in the weaker form, there is then recognition that moral decision making, particularly in medical ethics, is a complex issue. So a weakness we're going to talk about in a minute is that actually this principle is too fixed and rigid to be practical. You know, it's impractical. It doesn't work in practice. We could say it's great on paper, but it doesn't take into account the reality of medical ethics, for example, in the real world, when there are all these different factors to be considering. Whereas you could say, you know, in the weak form it is actually more suitable it is actually more practical because it does recognize moral decision making is a complex issue which is why it considers exceptional circumstances for example you know when um treatment could be omitted or withdrawn so you know there is then that uh, greater flexibility we could say in that weaker version However, we do also need to know weaknesses of the principle, of course. And I think the main one is that it depends on belief in God. And we know from the secularization topic, of course, that belief in God is declining in the UK. You know, less than half the population are now Christian. And so it's only going to appeal to people who believe that we have been created by God. So in terms of, you know, in medical ethics, it's actually not going to be very helpful, is it? Because half of the people, half of the doctors, potentially at least, don't actually believe in God. So why would they use this principle to inform their ethical decision making? We can say it also ignores modern science, which states that humans are evolved animals. And so that is a great link to uh, the science topic, isn't it? You know, actually, we are evolved animals. We're not divinely created imago Dei. We actually evolved over thousands of years. So it's not in keeping with modern scientific understanding. We could say it promotes an anthropocentric view of the world, which devalues animals. And we will talk about this a lot more today when we look at the work of Andrew Lindsay, who is very, very angry about how Christian ethics prioritizes humans and takes what he says is an anthropocentric view of the world. And that's this idea that humans are at the center of the world, that the world exists for humans and that we are the most important things or species, I should say, on the planet. And he says, actually, we're devaluing animal life here by focusing on that Imago Dei doctrine. We are ignoring the fact that actually our ethics should be focused on God. He says our ethics today have become too anthropocentric. And this is a great example of that going on and on about the sanctity of human life. It actually then devalues animal life. And he says animals have been created by God as well. We could say the strong version may be seen as too rigid. So, you know, linking it to situation ethics, you know, it's that idea that these more traditional um, legalistic positions, they're too rigid, they're too fixed. They don't actually translate well when you try and use them in the real world. 
and building on that we could say it's unloving and lacking in compassion you know you can't just cling to this doctrine you have got to take in the circumstances no you've got to take the circumstances into account that's what I meant to say and of course you could then if you're you know developing this in a dialogue essay for example bring in situation ethics and say that the morality of an action is dependent on the circumstances and of course that's something sanctity of life in its strongest form is not prepared to consider okay so let's talk about 40 now we've sort of set the scene with what sanctity of life is and now we need to actually apply it so we're going to apply it to embryo research and of course embryo research is nothing brand new to us which is always great isn't it we just need to refresh our memories because we've spoken about this on paper one ethics when we've spoken about the application of ethical theories and we've also spoken about this here on paper two when we've spoken about religion and science so Embryo research, it's often used to understand more about genetic conditions and also causes of infertility. Uh, the embryos can be sourced from surplus IVF, IVF excuse me, embryos that are donated with consent. So, you know, the extra embryos that aren't then used as part of a couple's IVF course, you know, those embryos might then be donated, the surplus ones, to uh, embryo research or they can be created using stem cell therapeutic cloning. Now, license for this research, in case you are looking into doing some, can be obtained from the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, very authoritative name there. And licenses, interestingly, importantly, are only granted if research is absolutely essential. And that is so important if you're writing an essay about designer babies, for example, you know, will we allow embryo research if it's to ensure that my child is born with six pack abs and a nice you know is that absolutely essential I think not so you know really important embryos must have been created in uh, in vitro a petri dish and the research is permitted this is important for up to 14 days after which the embryo must be destroyed and again you know the catholic church is completely against this but this is because what is called the primitive streak appears at 14 days and this is seen by some as marking the beginning of the individual remember for the catholic church life begins at conception but then there are different beliefs you know some people might believe for example that life begins at birth all these different stages in islam not that we're doing islam many islamic scholars think that it begins at ensoulment when god gives the developing fetus a soul for example um, and of course when you're talking about embryo research you are going to talk about that question of when does life begin you know you wouldn't experiment on a newborn child so you know until what point could you experiment on an embryo and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis also known as pgd is permitted for medical conditions only yeah and this is obviously linked again to designer babies and sex selection is only allowed to prevent sex linked genetic conditions you can't use it so you can choose the sex of your baby Okay, question 41 then. What does the Catholic Church teach about embryo research and abortion? And remember, we're going to refer to the strong sanctity of life principle, which shapes the church's position on this. So the Catholic Church says in its catechism that human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception. From the first moment of his existence, the human being must be recognized as having the rights of a person. So from the moment of conception, among which is the inviolable, I can't say that word, inviolable. There we go. I think I've got it right there. Let's hope right of every innocent being to life no doubt someone will correct me in the comments the church therefore says and this is very important because it's very specific to the issue it is immoral 
to produce human embryos intended for exploitation as disposable biological material. So obviously, the church characterizing this research there very negatively, saying it's immoral, but also saying it's a form of exploitation. And I think that choice of language there is very important, that they're calling this exploitation, you know, whereas we've just spoken about it as really important research, the church is seeing it as exploitation. And that's because such manipulations, so any changes that you might make, for example, are contrary to the personal dignity of the human being, because you've got to remember the church believes uh, that God is sovereign over life, that God has formed you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and consecrated you. So the idea that human beings would then change God's creation in any way, you know, have any kind of interference with the embryo, that would obviously be seen as a very negative thing. So the church also says, of course, abortion is a moral evil because life begins at conception. And so it would go against the, the Ten Commandments, do not kill. It would be seen as murder. So the strong sanctity of life principle would prohibit the destruction of embryos and it would prohibit abortion. Even if the intentions behind embryo research are good, they cannot justify an act that is wrong in itself. And the church loves to describe things as intrinsically wrong. Yeah. And so embryo research is considered wrong. It's intrinsically wrong. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the intention or the apparent justification for it, it is intrinsically wrong, according to the church. That's because it exploits the inability of the embryo to give consent. So there is no opportunity for consent. And so you could say that, you know, doesn't respect the rights of the uh, embryo, which is seen as a, um, you know, a really negative thing. It disobeys the biblical teaching to protect the most vulnerable in society. The destruction then of the embryo is tantamount to murder. That would be seen as murder by the church. Um, and the use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which we've mentioned, where IVF embryos are tested for genetic diseases, may actually be seen as an act of discrimination that could lead it to be a slippery slope, as we say in ethics to designer babies. And this would be seen as playing God, which obviously is wrong because he is sovereign over life, not you in your science lab. 42 then, what does the Church of England actually teach about this? Of course, we need to know for our evaluation those different sides of the argument and we need to have the evidence and be ready to explain that evidence to support those different views. And of course, we're going to link in here the weak sanctity of life principle. So the Church of England does take a very different approach here, as it does on many moral issues. The church says that providing strict controls such as the 14 day cutoff point are in place. The Church of England teaches that embryo research can be morally acceptable. So you've got your Catholics with the strong principle who oppose, whereas your Church of England with the weaker principle who would actually support it. Um, and this is obviously based on the fact that the embryo is a potential person rather than an actual person. And a nice one here, is it seen as an extension of Jesus's healing ministry and a responsible use of God-given gifts? You know, remember, Jesus was all about healing people, helping people, curing people. And of course, this research can do just that. And so it could be seen as something that is following in the footsteps of Christ and obviously is then using God-given skills. God has given you these talents, these tools, you know, the development of science, as we know from the religion and science section is very much seen as, you know, part of God's way of helping us, you could say. 
And so it's right that we use it to help and heal people. Obviously, the church would not be allowing it to then be used in an inappropriate way that could exploit or cause harm. But, you know, in a way that will help people, the church is going to give a, a nice tick and a gold star. And then obviously PGD is acceptable for medical reasons only. So to transmit, no, not to transmit, to stop the transmission, excuse me, of those serious genetic diseases, it would be allowed because, again, it's an extension of that healing ministry. You could obviously link in their situation ethics as well. It puts into practice Jesus's teaching, his call to do the most loving thing. In terms of abortion, then, the Church of England does view abortion as a moral evil, but they do take a different view to the Catholic Church because they acknowledge that sometimes it is what we could call the lesser of two evils. And so it could be justified in exceptional circumstances such as to preserve the mother's life, because, of course, that life that already exists would be seen as more important or is taking priority over that potential life, that developing life in the womb. So it can be justified, as I say, as the lesser of two evils. It's not going to be encouraged, but it could be uh, seen as acceptable when the pregnancy has resulted from rape. And of course, that's going to cause potential emotional distress or when the child would be born with a terrible life-limiting condition. And of course, that's going to cause physical distress, physical pain. Um, and so there are exceptional circumstances, you know. Again, you know, th these aren't things that are being encouraged. Abortion isn't seen as something to be encouraged, but it is, you know, um, seen as acceptable as the lesser of two evils. And that reflects the sanctity of life principle. The idea that the embryo is a developing person, not an actual person. And so, you know, there can be exceptional circumstances when it could be right or it could be the justifiable thing to do. And again, link that into situation ethics from paper one, that the morality of an action is dependent on the circumstances. You've got to consider what's going on. You've got to consider, you know, what caused the pregnancy, for example, rape, and then what will the child's life be like if they're born into the world? Um, of course, the Catholic Church would say no to that because abortion is intrinsically evil. Yeah, there is no consideration of the circumstances. It is intrinsically evil. It is intrinsically wrong. It is murder because life has begun at conception. Okay, we're now going to apply this uh, sanctity of life to another issue. We're going to look at just war theory now, uh, and we're going to look at this in the context of Augustine and Aquinas. So what is just war theory? Well, it is a set of rules for fighting in a war believed to be justified and acceptable to God. Now, of course, you know, I always think straight away, well, we've got a commandment that says do not kill. And one thing that's guaranteed with war is killing, isn't it? However, this just war theory has been developed um, over the years, first by Augustine, who, of course, we've met many times when he's been talking about original sin and he's been, you know, very negative about women. Um, and also Aquinas, who we've met many times, you know, for example, with natural moral law. Now, whilst the early church was largely pacifist, and we will be looking at quotes that support that in a moment, this just war theory has been developed, as I say, by Augustine and Aquinas. And today, the Catholic Church teaches, because of just war theory, that there are strict conditions when war can be fought. Remember, St. Thomas Aquinas, a doctor of the Catholic Church in the uh, 13th century very influential on church thinking to this day. For example, his attitude to animals is going to be influential in a moment's time. Um, but we need to know with just war theory that it literally sets out the criteria, the rules 
for when a war can be fought. So, you know, you tick them off for when a war might be justifiable to start it or get involved in it. And then a second set, which is all about how it should then be fought. So it's about whether you can fight it and then if so, how you should fight it, okay? And these are known as just ad bellum and just in bello. So just ad bellum is the conditions when going to war might be justifiable. And then just in bello is the criteria for how it can be fought. So we're gonna have a look at those in detail now. So 44, give examples of the just ad bellum criteria. So this is the criteria, as I say, for deciding whether or when going to war might be justifiable. So can it be justified? Can we do it? And the criteria is this. It's got to have been declared by a legitimate authority. So it's not some random person on the street that goes, you know what, let's have a war, you know, or on TikTok, for example. It's got to be a legitimate authority, for example, the government. It has to have a just cause. So the reason for the war can't be, you know, well, we were bored, you know, we felt like a bit of fun, you know, or I don't know, I'm trying to think, you know. They wouldn't do something for us. We're not happy. I've thrown my toys out the pram. The cause has got to be justifiable. You've got to have a right reason. You've also got to have a right intention. So what you're trying to do has got to be correct. You know, your intentions have got to be to protect someone, for example, or to defend someone. Your intention can't be, you know, I want more land. I want more money that kind of thing. It's also got to be a last resort. You know, this can't be your first response to a problem. You can't just, you know, be having an argument between two countries and go, okay, we're going to war with you. You've got to have tried the peace talks, the negotiations beforehand. This has got to be your absolute last resort, that there's nothing else that you can try. Nothing else will work in terms of peaceful resolutions. And finally, it's got to have a reasonable chance of success. You know, you can't go into the war if there's 0% chance of any success. You've got to have some certainty that you can actually win the war. You've got to know what winning would look like. You know, you've got to know what you need to do in order to win this war. It can't just be entered into when you think we're just going to be here for years and years and years. There's no end. There's no end or exit strategy in sight. There's got to be a chance of success. Then we have the just in bellow. So you've met that criteria. So now obviously you're in, in the war. You're there. You're on the front line. It's all kicking off. How should it then be fought? Well, number one for this criteria is that innocent civilians must not be targeted. And of course, you know, when we apply this to nuclear weapons, which we'll do in a moment, you know, this is, you know, a really important one. Nuclear weapons are indiscriminate. They kill absolutely anybody in the area. Um, whereas this just war criteria requires that innocent civilians are not targeted. Now, the doctrine of double effect, of course, is that, you know, if you're targeting an ammunition factory, for example, and it happens that people lived around it and they died when you bombed that factory, the doctrine of double effect would see that as an, you know, a side effect, if you like, of your course of action. But if you're directly targeting civilians, that would actually be seen as wrong. And then finally, the use of force must be proportionate. And again, we'll talk about this with regards to nuclear weapons. But basically, your force must be proportionate. You know, someone can't just shoot with one weapon, so then you drop a nuclear bomb. You know, it's got to be proportionate. You've got to make sure that your response is proportionate to the, um, what can I call it? The trigger for your response, the reason for your response. So, you know, you're fighting fire with fire, that kind of thing. It's got to be in proportion. Okay, so let's then develop this a bit more. So 50, not 50, not yet, 46 for now, excuse me. 
explain the Catholic Church's teaching that there are strictly limited circumstances when war can be justified. So this is based on that just war criteria. You know, we've just seen what that criteria is. We've seen those um, five things, such as as a last resort and for a just cause with the right intention. So in accordance with just war criteria, which has, you know, influenced the church, as I say, Aquinas, massively influential on the church, Augustine, massively influential on the church, as we know. So in accordance with their just war criteria, there are strictly limited circumstances when war can be justified. And as I've put, see the just ad bellum, but also the just in ad bellu. Is it bellow? Just in bellow, excuse me, criteria. Honestly, guys, and the Latin's gone out the window today, clearly. Okay, however, we need to know that whilst the Catholic Church would therefore support a just war, there are Christians um, who would oppose. And as we say, the early church was uh, very much pacifist. So explain why Christian pacifists, such as the Quakers, who are a contemporary denomination of Christian, or Martin Luther King Jr., very famous 20th century Christian, why would they be completely opposed to the use of violence? So just in terms of what that keyword itself means, pacifism is the belief that all violence is wrong, which then, of course, would affect your behaviours, because if you believe that all violence is wrong, you're then going to refrain from it. And of course, we can actually link this back to the sanctity of life, can't we? Because it's this idea then, you know, that violence is always wrong because it causes harm to human beings. Why don't we want to do that? Because we believe in the sanctity of life. We believe it is always wrong to take life uh, because everyone's made Imago Dei in the image of God. It is God who is sovereign over life, not us. Uh, and so obviously, you know, that's going to affect your attitude to war if you believe in the sanctity of life. And as I say, Quakers are pacifists. So they're a denomination of Christian who are pacifists. Pacifists, even, excuse my pronunciation there. I was too focused on my green tape. So Quakers believe that their faith in Jesus, their Christian faith, inspires them to, and this is your key quote from them, utterly deny all outward wars. And this is very similar, if you've ever studied Islam, to that distinction between the lesser and greater jihad, the greater jihad being the inner struggle, you know, to be a good person, and then the um, lesser jihad being that outer struggle. So they're saying, you know, you can have a war within yourself to discipline yourself and, you know, be your best, if you like, but you can't engage in an outward war, so in an actual physical war. Uh, and so they would be conscientious objectors to conscription. So if there was a war, they may be conscientious objectors. So they would say, my beliefs prohibit me from fighting or uh, being conscripted to fight because I feel so strongly about this issue based on, you know, the beliefs I hold. And of course, as we know, under that UN Article 18, I think it is, we have that freedom of religion, thought and conscience. And so they believe war can never be justified because it always leads to the loss of life. And that is wrong. Jesus was a pacifist. We're going to look at some quotes from him in a moment. Martin Luther King Jr., another really famous pacifist, of course, led the civil rights movement in the 20th century. He taught that we must use the weapon of love instead, that violence can never be justified, that everything should be resolved through non-violent means, that peace can only be achieved peacefully. And so if you're thinking of, well, what is the aim of your war? If your aim is peace, how do you think you can achieve peace through violent methods? And Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, if we want love, we need to use love. We need to use the weapon of love. A really great quote to memorize and actually use. And of course, this all links back to Jesus himself, who was known, who is given the title of Prince of Peace. 
he taught his followers, blessed are the peacemakers. So, of course, he's saying there, be a peacemaker. And uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is saying you can only be a peacemaker by using peaceful methods. You can't bring about peace in a violent way. And Jesus said those who live by the sword die by the sword. So that affirms that, doesn't it? You can only achieve peace by using peaceful methods. And so you should not use violence. And then obviously the implication of that is that you should not be getting involved in a war. OK, 48 then. One quote from scripture that would suggest Jesus was a pacifist and one that suggests he would sometimes permit the use of violence. And of course, this is really important because, you know, when we're evaluating, we have to give both sides of the argument. We have to give evidence for both. And of course, if you're writing in a Christianity essay, you're going to be writing about Jesus, aren't you? The ultimate main man, the main source of authority for Christians. So he did say, blessed are the peacemakers. And he said, put your sword back in its place because those who live by the sword will die by the sword so it's not going to be good for you there will be no winners here everyone who uses the sword will die by the sword but he also said i have not come to bring peace but a sword so that would suggest you know if he's brought a sword he's going to use it potentially so you know he's not ruling out the use of violence there and also we have a key example from jesus that you know when he was um shocked by what he saw he was prepared to use violence for example overturning the tables in the temple at the beginning of holy week when he arrives in jerusalem and he sees people selling things in the temples he overturns the tables now I must emphasize here, he doesn't actually harm anybody. So again, there's a nice counter argument there. He doesn't actually harm anybody, but he's making a statement. You know, he's using violence in protest here to say to them, this is wrong. He says, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. And so you could say that when you see injustice, you see something that is wrong. You can use violence in order to protest against it. You know, that Jesus was prepared to use uh, violence to use force we could say to use proportionate force and so Christians today can do the same okay we are going to therefore look at this question of force and of proportionate force because we're looking now at weapons of mass destruction and I've asked you in the question to refer to the UN's warning that they are the most dangerous weapons on earth so of course you know that is really cautioning against their use because of the consequences of their use so these are weapons of mass destruction and they are weapons which cause widespread indiscriminate damage. So, you know, they aren't targeted. Uh, they are indiscriminate. So anybody and anything in the local area to their use or where they've been used is going to be destroyed. And our key examples are nuclear, chemical and biological. So in alphabetical order, biological weapons, biological and toxin weapons are either microorganisms like a virus, a bacteria or fungi or toxic substances produced by living organisms that are produced and released deliberately to cause disease and death in humans, animals or plants. So, you know, you release a certain virus, for example, in order to cause disease and death. So it's a biological weapon. Chemical weapons, then, these are chemicals used to cause intentional death or harm through their toxic properties. They obviously will cause injury, disability and death. And they were used quite recently, actually, uh, in the Syrian civil war. They were found to have been used. So, you know, they cause a lot of suffering. Um, and again, they're indiscriminate, you know. 
And finally, then nuclear weapons, a bomb or missile that uses nuclear energy and the reactions there. Don't ask me any more detail. I'm not an expert on the uh, physics behind it, but they obviously cause an explosion that then causes, you know, a lot of death destruction as well. There are, did you know, nine nuclear powers in the world, including the USA and Russia, who between them um, hold 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, but then also China, the UK, France and North Korea. So in the UK, we have something called the Trident Nuclear Submarine Program. This is operated by the Royal Navy, by submarines, four submarines to be exact, one of which is always on patrol somewhere in the world, ready to act upon orders to use those nuclear weapons. Each one carries up to eight missiles and 40 warheads. Uh, and a new submarine fleet is actually currently being built because a 2016 Commons vote voted to renew the programme. So that shows the government, and if we link that to just war criteria and legitimate authority, that shows the government uh, believe in the need for this programme. Now, you could say, you know, if there was a complete... Um, removal of nuclear weapons from the world, would it be right to have them? The government says we need them as a deterrent because other countries have them. It would be foolish for us not to possess them because then they could, you know, demand things from us knowing that we don't have those weapons to use against them in return. So the government says we hope we never have to use them, but it would be foolish not to have them as a deterrent. And that is your key word, deterrence. And of course, they have been used before, you know, um, the 1945, which obviously was at the end of World War Two, atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are thought to have killed up to 200,000 people. So, you know, that really shows you the scale of their widespread indiscriminate damage. Question 50, then, is a uh, reference to Pope Benedict XVI, of course, a former Catholic pope. He said that in a nuclear war, so should there be a nuclear war where those nuclear powers are using their weapons against each other, he said there would be no victors, only victims. So what does he mean by this? And of course, we're going to link that to sanctity of life, but also to stewardship, which we're then going to start to unpack more when we look at animal ethics as well. So the UN have described these as the most dangerous weapons on Earth. And that is because they would not only destroy human life on a mass scale, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions, hundreds of millions of people in a nuclear war, billions of people potentially, with what we call mutually assured destruction, where all human life and all life full stop would actually be destroyed. So they destroy human life on that mass scale, but also all life. To start to think about your just war criteria and actually whether these could meet that. So they destroy human life, animal life, the environment. Anything that's alive, basically, would be destroyed. That's how powerful and destructive they are. And of course, it raises this question of, well, why do we have them? You know, if they were used, if there was a nuclear war, there would be no winner. So there would be no reasonable chance of success. Everybody would actually be a victim and die. And that links in with that idea of mutually assured destruction, that their use in a war would lead to the annihilation of all life on Earth. There's a very positive thought for your day. So this not only violates, of course, the Christian teaching on preserving human life, because you're actually going to destroy the entire human race, but also protecting the world, because you're also going to destroy the world that God has created and given to you as a gift. And he has told you to take care of. So, yes. It's, you know, it's not going to end very well, is it, shall we say? So, of course, in terms of scripture, 
it's going to go against Exodus. Do not kill because you are killing on a mass indiscriminate scale. You're, you know, potentially killing all of humanity. But also then Genesis says God put man in the garden to take care of it. So we were put in the world to take care of it, not destroy the entire thing in a war. Uh, so let's actually talk, though, for 51, why some Christians may think the use of weapons of mass destruction could be justified by just war criteria. So you could say, you know, if you're really picking carefully, it could meet some of the just ad bellum criteria because it could be seen as a last resort. You know, if another uh, country has decided to deploy their nuclear weapons and you know they're going to destroy your country, this could be a last resort for you. Or, of course, if declared by a legitimate authority, as they say, you know, the UK government has them. The prime minister is the one who would authorise their use. And you could say, well, you know, the prime minister is democratically elected. So if they decide they need to be used, then, you know, that is declaration by a legitimate authority. So we could say it does meet some of the criteria. Interestingly, as well, Joseph Fletcher, who we know, don't we, from our paper one study of situation ethics, he implied that the 1945 nuclear bombings were the most loving action in that particular situation in terms of the role they played in, uh, you know, bringing to an end the war, bringing the war to an end. So he based this on his version of utilitarianism and on his equation of agape with justice. So, you know, really interesting there to consider, actually, could their use be justified for a greater good? Obviously, if their use led to a nuclear war where there would be no victors, only victims, we're going to think no. But actually, in that case, is you know, is it correct? Is Fletcher correct to imply that, you know, that was actually the most loving action in that particular situation? Can you ever foresee that as a loving thing to do, to use weapons of mass destruction? 52 then, why would some Christians think the use of these weapons could never be justified? So again, thinking of contrasting these viewpoints for an AO2 essay, they obviously cannot meet the criteria of proportionality and, of course, uh, to protect innocent life. So both of those just in bellum criteria are going to be violated, aren't they? You know, you're not going to have any innocent life protected. You know, when you use these weapons, you know that all life is going to be destroyed. They are going to be indiscriminate. And of course, for the poor animals as well, what have the animals done? What have the trees done? They're all going to be destroyed in the process. And we are going to talk about animal ethics and environmental ethics in a moment. Uh, obviously, it goes against do not kill, doesn't it? Because it would actually lead, that should say, to the loss of life on an extraordinary scale, on an unthinkable scale. In terms of stewardship, God put man in the garden to take care of it. We're told in Genesis chapter two, this would obviously destroy the environment as well as human life. So that would go against the duty to be stewards. And again, that key idea of it leading to mutually assured destruction. So, you know, it's a bit of a kamikaze suicide mission because there would be no victors, only victims. So that is why it couldn't be justified. There is no reasonable chance of success. There is just a guarantee of mutually assured destruction. OK, we are going to move on then to our final section of the uh, key moral principles revision. We are going to look at stewardship and dominion, which allows us to consider this question of animal ethics and environmental ethics. So stewardship is duty based 
whereas dominion is power-based, okay? So stewardship is the duty to take care of the world, to be stewards, you know, like a football match or a, a theatre event or a concert, stewards are those who are looking after the people there, aren't they? It's their job to be marshalling people and make sure everybody's okay. And this is the idea in Christianity that humans are stewards over creation, that they uh, are here to take care of the world and that they will be rewarded for that by God. And we get this belief, we derive this belief from scripture, as we always do, because Genesis says that God put man in the garden to take care of it. And so we are here to take care of creation. Dominion, then, is the belief that humans can dominate and rule over the rest of creation. And this, again, is derived from Genesis, which literally says they may rule over all the creatures. And that is associated with the Imago Dei doctrine, the idea that it is humans who are made in the image of God. So they have this special value. They then have this special power. But we are going to look at this debate about whether with dominion comes responsibility. And we're going to be looking at this debate between stewardship and dominion. Are they compatible? Are they in conflict? If you have to choose between the two, which one should a Christian choose? Um, and we'll look at Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, for example, which is very critical of the idea that we can just be dominating over um, the rest of creation. He actually says that is based on a misunderstanding of scripture. So we're going to look at that in detail. So let's start looking at that now, actually, because uh, as I Pope Francis wrote an encyclical called Laudato Si and I've asked you to tell me about it and explain in particular his quote, a very helpful quote, let us be protectors of God's creation and of course we're going to refer that, we're going to link that to stewardship. So Laudato Si which is called On Care for Our Common Home and of course the connotations of that are very significant aren't they, you know describing the world as our common home it is an encyclical, so a letter written by a pope, so of course it has absolute authority for Catholics, published in May 2015. Now, this uh, was obviously in response to the problem of climate change and the use and abuse of the environment for human profits, human gain, and, you know, in order to fulfil human needs. And Pope Francis emphasises here that we have been created as God's stewards, that we are here to be protectors of God's creation. We shouldn't be exploiting it for profit. And he links that back to Genesis, to Adam and Eve, who were placed in the garden to take care of it, not to exploit it, not to use it for their own gain, but to actually to take care of it, to work it and take care of it. And so humans today, he believes, have a duty to be stewards and protectors of God's creation. And so we should be caring for creation on God's behalf, viewing the world as a gift that should be looked after. And we can link this to Psalm 24 in the Bible, which says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So we are here as his stewards. We are here to care for the world. It's not ours to use and abuse. It's a gift from him. You know, we're only here for such a short amount of time. We've got to look after it whilst we're here. We can't just use it and abuse it in any way that we like. That leads us on then to 55, because Pope Francis also writes in Laudato Si. So, you know, make sure you've got these key quotes written down, get them on a post-it note, and you can refer to them in your exam answers. He also reminds humans, he writes, that we are not God. The earth was here before us, and it has been given to us. So it's a gift. 
So here he is reminding us we are not God. And this is important because it links to what uh, Andrew Lindsay says, that ethics have become too anthropocentric rather than theocentric. You know, we think basically that we are now God when actually we're not. God is God. This is God's world. We are here as stewards. It's not ours to use, abuse and profit from. So he warns against focusing too much on dominion. He says we must not think the world is ours to use, abuse and exploit for our own advantage. You know, we could link that as well to Psalm 24, because this psalm tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So it's not ours to exploit for our own selfish gain and advantage. He is, you know, he is telling people here, he's reminding people here, the earth has existed long before us and it will exist long after us. You know, we're only here for 88 years. You know, we believe the universe has been here for 13 billion, 14 billion. So, you know, it's about having humility and it's about being respectful that you are just a tiny part of this incredible, ever expanding universe. And so you've got to remember you are not God. It is a gift. It's a privilege to be here and it's our job to care for it, protect it, not exploit it for profit. So let's bring in Andrew Lindsay, shall we? Because he thinks it's important to see the world as theocentric, which of course means God-centric, theos means God, rather than anthropocentric. And anthropocentric means, of course, human-centred. And that's the link, isn't it, to um, also on paper two, the God topic, where we talk about anthropomorphic language to talk about God. So he is the author of a book called Theology as if Animals Mattered, because he believes that Christian ethics has not seen animals as having value. And he sees that as a problem. He says Christian theology has been slow to address the issue of animal welfare. And actually, we need a Christian ethics. We need a theology where animals do matter. He says that the moral status of animals today is at a stage somewhat similar to the feminist issue 40 years ago. So, you know, a link there to the gender topic when, you know, we've seen those feminist theologians critiquing Christianity. He is now critiquing Christianity on behalf of the animals. And he's saying, you know, in the same way that we've worked for women's rights, LGBT rights, for example, we need to work for animal rights. So, you know, you could see him really as a liberation theologian for the animals, you know because he criticizes the anthropocentrism of Christian ethics. And he said, you know, we are too focused on humans. We believe that humans are at the center of the universe, at the center of the world, whereas actually they're just one part of creation. And, you know, we are seeing uh, human beings as gods, basically, when he's saying, actually, Christian ethics should not be focused on humans and their needs and what they want. It should be focused on God and what God wants. So we should replace our anthropocentric view of animals. So this view that animals are only here for our gain. You know, we're seeing them as our property, as our possessions, as our sources of profit. You know, we need to replace that view of animals with a theocentric one. They are not ours to use, abuse and exploit. They are ultimately God's. They have not been created just for us, he believes, but they have actually been created by God. They are part of his bigger plan. They're not just here for our profit. Now, we're actually going to see some quotes that disagree with that. For example, the catechism says God created everything for man. Um, but Andrew Lindsay would reject that because he says that we need to take a theocentric approach rather than maintaining this anthropocentric approach. Uh, so he believes that being a steward means caring for creation, for God's creation. Remember, he wants a theocentric approach to the environment and animals rather than exploiting and using creation for our own selfish gain. 
So we could link this in to Genesis 2.15, which is a really important piece of scripture, which tells us that God put man in the garden to work it and take care of it. So you could use that, couldn't you, to support his argument here that actually the purpose of our lives on this planet is to care for it. We may have been made Imago Day, but actually that carries with it great responsibility. And so that includes a duty to care for the rest of creation. So as I say, dominion comes with responsibility. We have a duty to look after the world, which ultimately belongs to God. And so we should be stewards looking after the planet rather than exploiting it for our own gain and advantage. We are here to take care of it rather than just profit from it. We could also link in here more scripture. We could link in here Psalm 8, which says you made them rulers over the works of your hands. Now, of course, this allows us to talk about the opposite position. So whereas Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, would support stewardship, we actually have another psalm that is saying you made them rulers. So you've not made them responsible for caring for it. You've made them rulers over it. And this links in with what the Catechism of the Catholic Church then teaches, which is that God created everything for man, because it suggests that humans do have dominion. They do have power over the rest of creation. And so, you know, because humans have been made Imago Dei, they are distinct from the rest of creation. They have been made rulers over the rest of creation. They have a special power. They have a special role. So actually, they can do what they want with the rest of creation, because that is how God has created them as rulers so if they want to you know have factory farms to you know have loads of animals that they can turn into burgers at mcdonald's do it if they want to burn those fossil fuels so they can become billionaires do it they are rulers they are in charge they have power everything's here for you to use so what are you waiting for you know go and have your chicken farm go and burn your fossil fuels get busy. You're in charge. You're the ones made in Mago Day, not the sheep. Um, so let's take a look then at, at 59. What does Genesis 126? Um, I can't even see it. Sorry, there's something on the screen. Genesis 126, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over all the creatures. So of course, that is your classic line. They may rule over all the creatures. It is saying that humans are made Imago Dei. So that makes them distinct from creation. That makes them above the rest of creation. It makes them the pinnacle of God's creation. And so that gives humans special importance and power. And we can say this leads some Christians to believe that humans have dominion, of course, that they can then use animals and natural resources for profit, that they have power. And so that is going to lead to that very anthropocentric attitude to ethics, isn't it? It's going to place humans at the centre because they are here to rule over. Interesting that there is that link between the Imago Dei and then the dominion, you know, really interesting. Imago Dei leads to belief in the sanctity of human life and then also the supremacy of human life, that human life is more important than any other life. So interesting, the implications of that one doctrine, how important it is, how, you know, influential it is on Christian ethics and thinking. And as I've put there, the catechism says that God created everything for man, and that is derived from Genesis. There is also a influence from Thomas Aquinas on the catechism here, because Thomas Aquinas didn't only influence um, just war theory. He also influenced thinking on uh, the use of animals, because he said that both their life and death are subject to our use. 
So he is, of course, here saying that God has created everything for man, that the life and death of animals is subject to our use, that in their lives we can use them, you know, for whatever reason, in experiments, for example, but also their death is our use as well. We can kill them for our own profit, for food, for, you know, to get a nice fur coat, for example. So he is saying that both their life and death are subject to our use. And of course, that does link in to the catechism saying that God created everything for man, doesn't it? Uh, so it's this idea that animals exist in order to fulfill our needs and can be used in ways advantageous for us. So for profit, for food, for example, for experiments to preserve human life. It would support the use of animals for food, clothing, medical experiments and cosmetic experiments, etc. Now, of course, if we bring back in Lindsay here as our source of critical analysis, he would see this as a great example of how Christian ethics have become too anthropocentric because it assumes that animals only exist for the benefit of human beings rather than having value in their own right or having been created by God for a greater plan. Again, he says Christian ethics is too anthropocentric. You need to move away from focusing on humans and focus on God. And remember that God created those animals. Now, Aquinas would come back and say, well, yeah, he created them for you to use them. But of course, for Lindsay, this would be seen as, you know, a great example that it is too anthropocentric. Christian thinking is too focused on humans and think that animals only exist because they will serve human beings. And of course, that is what Aquinas is saying, but Lindsay is saying that is wrong. So you've got to start thinking which, which side of the argument, you know, do you support? What do you think? Uh, so finally, we've mentioned this a few times, uh, the catechism's teaching that God created everything for man. What is the implication of that then if we think about animal ethics? Of course, Lindsay would see that as a great example of the fact Christian ethics has become too anthropocentric. You know that all animals exist only to fulfill the needs of human beings. That is basically what that quote is saying. It is suggesting God has created animals to fulfill the needs of humanity, isn't it? That they can, they should therefore be used by humans for their own advantage. For example, for food or in experiments. And that then, of course, we link that back to dominion. That reflects belief in human power that humans may rule over, as Genesis says, all the creatures. OK, what about question 62 then? Because this actually takes it further. So Genesis says everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Now, just to set this in context, this happens after the flood, the big flood where Noah gets them all on the ark two by two. Uh, we all know that story, don't we, from primary school? So he is um, he. Who's he? Maybe I was thinking about Noah. What I meant to say is this is the new covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood. And God says to him that he has given him all the animals, fish and plants to use. So here you are, Noah, they're all yours. Create your farm, you know, make your money, have your burgers. Off you go. Because God says, we are told in Genesis, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. You don't need to be vegan. You don't need to stick to the plants and the lettuce leaves. You can have the cows. You can have your beef burgers. So this obviously would reaffirm that God created everything for man. So it would give scriptural support to dominion and it would give scriptural support to what the church teachings are. Uh, and it's obviously saying here that animals have been created in order to be food for humans. So it would support the use of animals for human gain, for example, for experiments as well. It gives humans permission to use animals for food. But again, 
thinking of your critical analysis, you could bring in Lindsay here because this is another example of how anthropocentric Christian ethics are, that this story has been written to justify the exploitation of animals. You know, this idea that everything, everything excuse me, has been created in order to benefit humans. And Lindsay, of course, says humans um, are not the pinnacle. They are not the only part of creation, that actually we have to focus on God because animals belong to God, not humans. But of course, your counter argument could be God has literally said they're here for you to use. Off you go, Noah. So, you know, a really great uh, debate you've got going on here, really, between these two sides of the argument. And again, you've got to be thinking in terms of what conclusion you will reach in your essay. You know, are you going to back the Dominion side of things or has Lindsay got a point? Question 63 then, why might modern methods of farming, fishing and using the Earth's natural resources be criticised by some Christians? So, you know, what would the problem be with those modern methods? Because, of course, things have changed since when the Old Testament was written, you know, the farming methods used when Genesis was written are not the same as the farming methods used today. You know, today over two trillion fish are killed every year for food. More than 70 billion land animals are killed every year for food. In the USA alone, 110 million animals are killed in experiments every year, some of them medical, some of them for cosmetics. And 10 million hectares of forest are deforested every year. That's an area roughly the size of Portugal every year. Although there are now efforts to bring about reforestation, I think it's called. You've got deforestation and then reforestation. Uh, so trees are then being planted as well to try and offset that. But what are the problems then with these, you know, these very large scale methods, you know, as I say, intensive farming, where you've got hundreds of thousands of animals in these factory farms. Um, so obviously too intensive, they would be seen as maybe unsustainable, as contributing to climate change, of course. And this reflects what Pope Francis wrote in Laudato Si'. He said, we must forcefully reject the notion that our being created in God's image and given dominion over the earth justifies absolute domination over other creatures. We do not have absolute domination. There still needs to be a concern for animal welfare, for example. Your methods need to be sustainable. You know, they need to be organic, for example. Get your organic farmers. You know, your fishing methods need to be sustainable. You know, when Jesus and his disciples were fishing, they had a little net, didn't they? Today, you've got these massive super fishing boats, these like massive super trawlers, I think they're called, where they literally sweep up half the Pacific Ocean in one go. You know, it's so different from how things were in the biblical times. And it's on such a scale that it might be seen as too intensive. You know, it's not treating animals with respect. You know, battery hens, for example, who are just kept in cages, just laying eggs, rather than being able to go out and, you know, peck in the, in the fields. <laughs> You know, the methods being used, which are all about maximizing profit, and so they're very anthropocentric, you know, they could be criticized. Question 64 then, almost there, guys. Explain the catechism's teaching that it is contrary to human dignity to cause animals to suffer or die needlessly. So, of course, the key word there is needlessly. The catechism is not saying you can't kill animals, you can't use them. But it is saying you can't do that needlessly. So that is going to be our key word here, because it suggests that, you know, certain things are acceptable. So if you need food, you can kill animals, you know, for medical experiments, you could use them. But then for other things that aren't uh, really necessary, you know, 
for example, you could say maybe, I don't know, a fur coat or cosmetic experiments, that actually it would be wrong to do that. It would be contrary to human dignity. And of course, that links into the Imago Dei, you know, that we are made in the image of God, that you shouldn't be doing that. Because it suggests that whilst, uh, I was going to say animal experiments, but of course, they're all animal experiments. It suggests that while medical experiments um, for the preservation of human life, linking in there to natural moral law, would be acceptable they could be justified you know for that uh covid vaccine for example cosmetic experiments which of course are not necessary they're just so a drugs company or not a drugs but a cosmetic company can make a profit would not be you know testing your waterproof mascara for example is you know needless you shouldn't be doing that on animals for profit whereas if it's to get a life-saving drug or vaccine developed then you can do it so animals can only be caused suffering or death if there is a justifiable reason for example the development of a life-saving vaccination or cure for illness and of course we link that to natural moral law to the primary precept of the preservation of life which of course because it's created by aquinas only applies to human life so don't make that misconception some people you know may make the conception misconception even that uh, it means you have to preserve all life but remember it's only human life because it's an aquinas based ethics okay what about 65 then why do many christians today reject the idea of complete domination and of course we have that key quote from pope francis that we must forcefully reject it because our dominion um justifies does not justify absolute domination so dominion does not justify absolute domination okay he believes pope francis believes that the idea we have complete dominion that we have absolute ability to dominate is an incorrect interpretation of scripture and the reason is this Dominion does not give us free reign to do what we like. It comes with responsibility and requires a sense of duty. We have a duty to be protectors. And so dominion does not justify absolute domination over other creatures. So remember, dominion does not justify absolute domination. Dominion comes with responsibility. It comes with a duty to protect. So, you know, in the same way that, you know, having children, for example, being a parent does not mean you can then use your children to, you know, do slave labor, for example. You know, you have a duty to care for that child, don't you? And so, you know, it's this idea that dominion having power. And of course, this applies to power in any context comes with responsibility whenever you have power over people as a manager for example you know as a monarch that carries responsibility you can't then just have uh, absolute domination and do what on earth you want quite literally uh, so then of course linking in Lindsay it's the idea that God is the ultimate sovereign over the earth we must take a theocentric approach it is God's earth we are just looking after it for him rather than an anthropocentric approach where we believe we're the most important, everything revolves around us, we should have absolute domination. And then uh, finally, I think, is this the last question? No, it's not, I tell a lie. But uh, we're nearly at the end, don't worry. Number 66, state two issues associated with the global environmental crisis. Dr. Luke Kemp said that there are plenty of reasons to believe climate change could become catastrophic, even at modest levels of warming. So, you know, even if we don't have a nuclear war, we've got climate change. So it's all looking great, isn't it? Uh, so what are the problems? What are the issues? You could say pollution, of course, 
a lot of research at the moment about the consequences of uh, air pollution in cities, for example, and how that is affecting life expectancy in places such as London. Loss of habitats, of course, rising sea levels because you've got the ice caps melting. And of course, you know, that's going to again lead to the loss of habitats, but also it's going to lead to changes in, you know, the um, the number of tsunamis and things. I'm assuming I'm thinking flooding, more flooding, I'm guessing, of course. Uh, global warming, as you can see, I'm not a geography expert, um, although I did get an A star in the GCSE geography, can I just say 100 percent. But yeah. I'm not really living up to that today, am I? I do apologise. <laughs> it also leads to increased risk of droughts and extreme weather events. And then ultimately, of course, as I say, we're being very positive today, extinction. So, you know, if you don't have mutually assured destruction from the uh, weapons of mass destruction, you've got that ultimate extinction from climate change and the global environmental crisis. So, yeah, as Greta Thunberg says, uh, how dare you? <laughs> You have stolen our future. It's not looking good, is it? Um, so this does lead us to the final question today, which is how are Christians responding? So obviously we have got a problem. Pope Francis has written a letter about the problem, Laudato Si. But what are we now doing about the problem? What is the Christian response? And I've asked you to refer to eco-theology, which is kind of like a liberation theology for the planet. Um, and also a rocha, which means a rock, the rock. So we're going to talk about these two examples. Many churches today are promoting what is called eco-theology. This is an environmental approach creating a right relationship between religion and nature. It's emphasizing the interrelation of all God's creation. So, you know, it's about avoiding a belief we have that absolute domination, that we're at the top of the tree, but actually believing everything is interrelated, that, you know, all of the environment is interrelated. We depend on the environment. We should care about the environment. So, you know, it's very much about let's embrace the trees, you know, let's talk to the plants. So King Charles would like it. This obviously can be derived back to Lindsay again, because he, of course, advocates a theocentric. We could say this together now, couldn't we? I've said it that many times. Get it on a T-shirt. You know what I mean? He advocates a theocentric rather than anthropocentric approach to animals and the environment. So then we've got A. Rocha, which is an international Christian environmental organization. There's a mouthful with projects in many countries and their faith inspires them to care for creation. Yeah. So it's about putting faith in action. Their website says they are a global family of conservation organizations working together to live out God's calling. So it's seen as a calling from God. And we can link that to Genesis to take care of the garden for creation, take care for creation and equip others to do likewise. So I do hope that's been helpful. Thank you very much for joining me. Good luck with your studies. Good luck with your revision. And I will see you, I hope, very soon. Bye bye.